You know, before we get any further on today, I just want to say that there are probably precious few of you left who are here or watching who remember right where you were when you heard about the events of December 7th, 1941. And if you're my age or older, you remember right where you were when you heard about the events of November 22nd, 1963. And you probably remember where you were when you heard about the events, especially if you were anywhere near Oklahoma City, of the events that took place on April 19th, 1995. And if you're 18 years old or older, you remember where you were when you lived through the day of September 11th, 2001. Defining events in American history that must not be forgotten, and many others like them. On September 11, 2001, Islamic terrorists commandeered four commercial airliners and flew them like guided missiles in an attempt to destroy America and bring us to our knees. Two of those planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York. One of them, with 70 people on board, crashed into the Pentagon in Washington. A fourth plane that was intended either probably for the White House or the Capitol was commandeered by a group of very brave, everyday Americans who flipped that plane over, overtook the terrorists, and crashed it in a field in Pennsylvania. Over 3,000 people died in this attack, including 400 who were first responders, firemen, police, and members of the Port Authority. 10,000 people were injured in this attack, the most vicious attack on American soil in our history. September 11th, across the land today, is being remembered in a variety of, of ways. And unfortunately, a day that should be remembered for the heroism and the unity is often being remembered as something that should be put down because America is not worthy of such a remembrance. I want you to know that um, today we're going to take a moment to pray because there are, it was not only a lot of lives that were changed that day, but an entire nation changed. We always thought we were so impenetrable, but then we became very aware of our vulnerabilities. That day was so powerful that schools were encouraged to have prayer in their classrooms. So powerful a change that members of Congress of all parties came out on the Capitol steps and sang hymns and prayed to God. But of all the events and speeches that happened that day, there is none more powerful, in my opinion, than the words of a young black man who, when asked about what this day meant, he said, today there are no white Americans or African Americans. There are no Latino Americans or Asian Americans. There are no Indian Americans. Today, there are just Americans. And there was a unity that came out of that attack that was the opposite of what our attackers intended. 
And that is a unity that is worth keeping, a unity that must be led by God's people and his church. Let's, let's pray together. First of all, Father, I, I want to pray to thank you for our country. And despite the many issues that are tearing at the fabric of who we are, this is still the greatest nation on earth. And I thank you today, God, for the men and women who defend this nation every day, whether they are serving in the various branches of our military or whether they are our police, firefighters, and other first responders. I pray today, God, across the land that our observances will honor this nation and especially the memory of those who have died. God, I'm praying today for the families of those victims, thousands and thousands of people affected by the losses that day. And I pray, God, you will give them a comfort and a fulfillment as they're hoping that we will be a nation that will never forget. So Lord, today we commit ourselves to you afresh, that we will live our, our lives as vibrant believers in an eternal kingdom, but as the best citizens of America that we can be, embracing not only the highest ideals of our own country, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. And from that, God, we believe you can bring a unity that only God can create. We're asking you for that, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to a passage I was hoping I wouldn't have to preach. I was really hoping I'd be sick today and someone else would have to do this. Um, but that didn't work out. I got a runny nose, but that's as bad as it got. Um, and I ran out of time, and I had to be here. So it's the hope of a godly marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, be considerate of your wives. Let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> uh, Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Peter was writing to a group of persecuted believers who were living in the northern provinces of what would today be considered the country of Turkey. Many of these people had come to Jesus, and because of their faith in him, they were going through severe persecution. Some of that persecution was coming out of their own families. There were wives who came to Christ whose husbands didn't. There were husbands who came to Christ whose wives didn't. There were families that were being split. And these believers are saying, what do we do with this? How do I live in a house with a man who doesn't share my faith or a woman who doesn't share my faith? How, how do I do this if we're both Christians but we're facing horrible persecution from the rest of our family? What does God want us to do different in our married life now that we're followers of Jesus? And what Peter lays down 
in very simple form is really the hope of a godly marriage. It's the design that God has for marriage. It's as relevant in our day as it was in Peter's day. And the principles he lays down are true for us, whether we find ourselves single, never married, single because we're widowed, single because we're divorced, or whether we are married in a good marriage, married because we're, and we're separated, married and going through a divorce. These principles don't change, and they can help every single one of us. And this is what Peter wrote to these people who are desperately wanting to know what they should do. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, we'll come back to that phrase, it's significant. In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear." Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. Sometimes the word is given to a time and a place and a culture. Sometimes there are principles laid down that are for every generation and all people for all time. Today, God, I'm praying that wherever we find ourselves, we will hear what you are teaching. You'll help me today to hear it, and you'll help us to have the hope of a godly marriage no matter how difficult our circumstances. And we'll thank you, God, for what you'll show us in Jesus' name, amen. In 2012, the average American wedding, including reception, cost $28,427. It's even higher in more affluent areas. In Santa Barbara, it's over $42,000. In Manhattan, the average wedding costs $77,000. In other words, many couples are spending on a single event lasting a few hours the equivalent of a year's tuition of college, or what some Americans make in an entire year. In an article that was in a, a publication called The Week, it went on to say, this marital extravagance is being driven by what's been called the wedding industrial complex, a $70 billion business driven by dressmakers, florists, reception halls, event planners, caterers, bands, and so forth. One researcher explains Americans want perfect weddings, but they also want celebrity weddings where there is no budget and no limit to the materializing of our fantasies. Author Megan O'Rourke said, you're made to feel guilty if you try to cut corners, as if to do so is to cheapen your love. You know, when I read that article, I thought, wow, many people are willing to pay the price of having a good wedding, but fewer and fewer people are willing to pay the price of having a good marriage. Some who wouldn't think of cutting corners on their wedding are the very same people who are ending up cutting corners in their marriage. 
Pastor Warren Wiersbe, author, radio commentator, said a strange situation exists in society today. We have more readily available information about sex and marriage than ever before, yet we have more marital problems and divorces. Obviously, something is wrong. It is not sufficient to say that God is needed in these homes because even many Christian marriages are falling apart. The fact that a man and a woman are both saved is no guarantee that their marriage will succeed. Marriage is something we have to work at. Success is not automatic. Marriage is the bedrock of any society. That's why it's under such attack. Satan is sure to attack marriage as an institution. And that's why Peter was writing about it here to these persecuted believers. God has a design for marriage. The design began with this. One man, one woman for life. That was the design. Marriage, stress, and divorce happens. But many times it's because people neither know nor practice God's blueprint for a godly marriage. When I do weddings, I often tell the couple, God has a blueprint for marriage. It's in his word. But most people don't know it. So the vast majority of people are entering into the most significant relationship next to that of God. They have no idea how the thing's designed to work. They don't know how to be a wife. They don't know how to be a husband. Their ideas are shaped by the world, and they abandon the blueprint, and you wonder why marriages never turn out the way God designed them to be. It's like trying to build a house without a blueprint. You can get a house, but it won't be anything close to what was designed. So God maps out his design. So when Peter wrote to these believers who were coming to Christ, there were wives who were saved but not their husbands, and husbands but not their wives, or both of them were saved, and they didn't know how to do this thing called marriage as a Christian. So they had huge questions, so Peter maps it out for them. And he takes this opportunity to write to them what probably seemed as out of place to them in their day as it does in ours. But what he wrote is still the key to living the hope of a godly marriage, regardless of circumstance. And the key is in the phrase repeated both to wives and to husbands in the same way. You are to approach your role as a husband or a wife in the same way. In the same way as what? Or in the same way as who? And in the context of 1 Peter, it's in the same way as Jesus. Jesus is the groom. His church is the bride. And the way that that groom and that bride live together in that relationship is the model for how a husband and wife are to live in their marriage. That's why Peter tells them God's design for a godly marriage is to follow the example of Jesus Christ. What was his example? He lived a life of submission, and he lived a life being considerate. The hope of a godly marriage can be experienced when wives follow Christ's example of submission. This is what he said in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, 
who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Submission has gotten a really bad rap, mostly because of stereotypes and because of patriarchal, patriarchal misapplication, men not applying it rightly in their homes. John Piper, in one of his marriage books, once said, sin did not bring submission and headship into the home. It was sin that distorted submission and headship in the home. And the more we get back to understanding God's design, the more our marriages can work like God intended them to work. But times have changed. I was reading an article by Brian Wilkerson, who's pastor of Grace Chapel in Lexington, Mass., in his message one Sunday morning, he was quoting from an article, the May 13, 1965 Housekeeping Monthly Magazine's article called The Good Wife's Guide. Now, this is what was recommended for wives who wanted to be good wives 51 years ago. I thought you ladies might enjoy this. <laughs> Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious dinner ready when your husband gets home from work. This is a way of letting him know you have been thinking about him and are concerned with his needs. Prepare yourself. Put on some makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair. Be fresh looking. He's been with a lot of work-weary people. Prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash them up, brush their hair, change their clothes if needed. Remember, they are little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. Have a cool or warm drink for him and arrange his pillow and take off his shoes. Over the cooler months, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. After all, catering to his comfort will bring you immense satisfaction. Let him talk first. Remember that his topics of conversation are more important than yours. <laughs> Never complain if he comes home late or goes out to dinner or entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his need to relax. Now, before we have a total gender revolt here, let me try to explain a couple things. <laughs> Brian Wilkerson went on to say, obviously, times have changed. The irony is, though, that there really is some wisdom here. It's just buried under layers of stereotype and patriarchy. There really is something good and noble, he wrote, about doing these simple everyday tasks for another person. It's just that it was never meant to be flowing just one way, from wife to husband or from woman to man. In the New Testament, Paul tells us to serve one another, to defer to one another, to submit to one another. He tells husbands to love their wives, to care for their wives as they care for themselves, and to lay down their lives for their wives. You see, there is a mutuality to God's design, a mutual submission, seen in different roles. But it is critical that a wife learns her role of submission to a husband. And it is particularly rewarding when properly understood and applied. That's why Peter didn't hesitate to teach this important principle in the context of Jesus' submission to his father. Submission is our surrender to God's will. It is our surrender to his divinely established order in creation. Peter wrote in verse 1, Wives, in the same way, 
submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. That word submit is a military term. It means to rank under. It has nothing to do with value or importance or ability. It has to do with position and role. For example, a private in the military may actually be a better leader, maybe more intelligent, maybe even better, more militarily strategic than a sergeant or a lieutenant who may be over him. But the private submits under the rank of that order and the position the man holds over him, understanding that if everyone does that, the, the established order of the military will function the way it was designed to work. A wife may be actually a better leader than her husband, more godly, more gifted, more devout, more intelligent. She might be a better breadwinner. But her godly submission is really a surrender to God, an acknowledgement of the divine order of how God has established a home to work. Submission doesn't lower a person's standing. It elevates it. Because people who submit to the divine order participate in God's divinely established purpose. That's exactly what Jesus modeled in his humanity. Jesus is God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He is co-equal with God. And yet Jesus submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit, who is fully God, submits to the Son. The Godhead lives in mutual submission and co-equality perfectly. They, they are, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Godhead is the model for a marriage. That's why it says in Philippians 2, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That was the measure of his submission. And by fulfilling God's purpose in that submission, he was not diminished, he was exalted. Philippians 2 verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, that's why in this context, Peter wrote to them in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself. He submitted himself. He surrendered himself to God's plan. Peter said that's the model for wives. In the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands with the understanding you're submitting to a divine order bigger than you. This submission to a husband is acknowledgement by the wife that she is entrusting herself to the divinely established order for marriage. 
Paul was not appealing to culture. He was appealing to creation. This was not just a cultural norm for the first century Jewish patriarchal society. There are cultural norms there that are not for today. But this is not one of them. In fact, when the Apostle Paul taught about this, he was teaching from the the standpoint of this is the way God created things to be in all generations. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. You think of what Peter wrote was tough. Listen to this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. That meant teaching men in, in their spiritual lives. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, before I lose everybody here, let me take a moment (laughs) to try to explain this. What Paul is saying is the same thing Peter is saying. Eve was deceived when she usurped the word of God and went against that word that was given to her by her husband. Remember, God had said to Adam, this is how you're supposed to live and I want you to convey this to your wife so she will be, you will be her protection through this word. But she chose to act independently of him, not recognizing his protective authority over her and the rest is historic. And in the midst of that, Paul shares a powerful principle in verse 15 that's there and is true for wives, single women, men, everyone. 1 Timothy 2.15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. This is not saying that women have to have children to be saved. That's ridiculous. And it's not saying that women will be saved and survive the pain of childbirth, which is often the way this is taught. But if I'm understanding it correct, it's way bigger than that. What Peter is telling them is that when people live their lives in line with God's divinely appointed roles, they will be saved from becoming prey to the social evils of the day and take their part in maintaining the testimony of the church. So a married woman does this by the way she lives in submission to the headship of her husband and if God permits, fulfills her role as a faithful mom. A single woman has the same calling, to fulfill God's role for her as a single woman and by doing her part, maintain the testimony of Christ in her life and save herself from some of the social ills that befall single women who do not follow God's design. Men have the same calling to surrender themselves to God's design and by doing save themselves from men of the apparels in the world that men fall to when they don't follow and submit to God. The more everyone lives out their God-given calling and roles in life with faith, with love, with holiness and propriety, the more they are saved from the perils of the world and the sins that enslave people and relationships. This is why biblical submission, acknowledging the headship role that God gave the husband, is so vital to a marriage, to a family, to the church, to the nation, and the world. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the, of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now people, everything does not mean verbal and physical abuse. Women are not anybody's punching bag. As we're going to see a little bit later, men are not to use their role to dominate. Men who are verbally, physically abusing women, it's not only criminal, it's a total violation of God's designed order for the man in the marriage. So when God says submit in everything, he's not talking about a heavy-handed, abusive, physical or verbal abuse. He's not talking about that. But Peter did say, even when your husband isn't a Christian, even when he's not living worthy of respect. When a wife submits to God's designed order, then God can work through that example to impact her unsaved husband. That's why Peter said in verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The word won over is a missionary term. They'll be won over. You live for God and don't give way to fear and God can shine his light through you to show Jesus to your husband. Now ladies, there's no guarantee your husband's going to get saved. There's no guarantee he's even going to change. But a wife who lives like this pleases God. Peter said this is of great worth in God's sight when a woman seeks to honor a man, especially when he doesn't deserve it. What God wants to show this guy and show the world is real beauty. The beauty of his son in you. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter said the outer beauty fades. There is a multi-billion dollar cosmetic industry, and it helps, I suppose, for all of us, but the bottom line is it can't stop what's happening on the outside. It's fading away. But the beauty of Christ within only grows brighter. And ladies, this doesn't mean that you can't get your hair done or wear makeup or get a new dress. It does mean that real beauty that God values is not in those things. Yes, your husbands appreciate when you take a shower and you look good. They do. But in the end, that is not the impacting kind of beauty God's trying to show in your life. The real beauty is seeing Jesus in your life. And women who put their hope in God and live this kind of Christ-like submission, even in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances, Peter said, they will have a living hope. The hope that comes from knowing that they're doing their part before God to help build a godly marriage. And the rest is in God's hands. 
And not only submission on the wife's part, but the husband's role is critical as well, and maybe the harder one. The hope of a godly marriage can be experienced when husbands follow Christ's example of being considerate. And look what Peter said in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Guys, many times you and I are clueless at the signals our wives are sending because we are not really listening to what they're saying. We are not considering what they're trying to say. We see it totally different. Lee Eckloff, a pastor from Vernon Hills, was sharing in a message one time about two journals, imaginary or real, I don't know, but journals that this man, this husband and wife go through the same events the same day and they write about it in their journal and what they wrote was completely different. Listen to what the wife wrote in her journal. Tonight, my husband was acting weird. He had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere, get quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that he had nothing to, had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. And finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed. But I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I don't know what to do. The guy writes in his journal, rough day. Boat wouldn't start, can't figure out why. That's it. It's that simple. You've heard it said that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Guys, we are often clueless to what our wives' needs are because we're not listening to what they're saying. Now, this guy had a dozen opportunities to get his mind off his boat and onto his wife. And he missed it because he wasn't considerate. He was absorbed. He wasn't considering his wife. That's why Peter told husbands not to make that mistake. Peter said, guys, be considerate of your wife. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In the same way. It's the same way as who? In the same way as Jesus. In the same way that Jesus as the groom is considerate of his church, so I want you to be considerate of your wife. The word considerate means to, to dwell with, like to dwell with in one's house. Peter's relating in this word considerate that he chose to use, live with them in such a way that your wife knows that Jesus is living in your house in the person of you. What does that look like? He told him in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice in order to bring us closer to God. Husbands are to live in the same way for the same purpose. And remember, to treat your wife, he said, as the weaker partner and a co-heir with Christ. That word weaker partner is weaker vessel. That doesn't mean she's more she's mentally weaker or spiritually weaker. It's referring to her physical stature. Now, in most cases, most men are physically stronger than their wives. Not always, but most of the time. And Peter's telling them, guys, don't use your physical strength to dominate your wife. God gave you that strength to protect her and to be able to treat her like a fragile, expensive vase, as though she is something really valuable to you. Because she's heirs with you, co-heirs with Christ. She's your spiritual equal. And in many ways, she may be more spiritually mature than you are. Live considerate of her and her needs and your role with your wife in God's divinely established order. You see, the husband is responsible to set the spiritual tone and direction for the home. It was one of my biggest concerns when I was getting married. Carla had been a Christian since she was five. I had been a Christian two years. She knew the Bible better than me. She knew how to walk with God better than me. She knew about church better than me. She knew how to pray better than me. So when I'm getting married, the pastor asked me, Larry, are you ready to be a leader in your home? I said, man, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure what it means. Pastor Travail said, Larry, look, do you know how to pray? I said, yeah. He said, you make pr sure prayer is happening in your marriage. Can you do that? I said, yeah. He said, you know how to read the Bible? I said, yeah, I know how to read it. I don't know it well, but I know how to read it. He said, you make sure that reading the word together with your wife is happening every day in your home. Can you do that? Yeah, I can do that. He said, you know how to go to church? I said, yeah, I know how to go to church. He said, and you make sure you and your wife are vitally engaged in a local body every week, and you lead that, and you worship and you serve together. Can you do that? Yeah. He said, then if you can do some of those things, God will help lead your marriage. It was such a relief. And Peter said, if we don't do these things, it'll hinder your prayers. I wonder how many men have a compromised relationship with God because they've compromised their role that they're supposed to have with their wife. And I'm taking a risk to share this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it illustrates a point. I've had men over the years say to me, Larry, you need to talk to my wife. I say, well, what do I need to talk to your wife about? She keeps telling me that I need to be more like you. 
Now, when guys have said that to me, I've said, you know what? I don't need to talk to your wife. I need to talk to you because your wife is wrong. Oh, good. (laughs) I said, you don't need to be like me because if that's your aim, you are shooting way too low, way too low. You need to be shooting to live like Jesus. And I'll assure you, the more you look like him, your wife won't be comparing you to anybody else because she'll have in her home what she wants the most. Paul told the Ephesians in verse, chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. God intended that a man would lead a marriage in such a way that neighbors and others who saw that marriage would see a picture of Christ in the church. That's what he wants them to see. A woman fulfills her role through submission. A man fulfills his role through sacrifice. And even if a, even if a man is a wife who's selfish and proud and loud and rebellious and nasty... Remember, it's not how she's responding to you. It's how you respond to her. You may be separated. You may be going through an ugly divorce. She may deserve all of your angst and hatred. I'm not sure. But the bottom line is we're still responsible to respond with respect and being considerate. And that will honor God. And then he will use that to work on your wife. And when you see a man seeking to respond to his wife like Christ does the church, it gives you hope. Circumstances may be hard, but God, with your help, I'm doing my part towards the hope of a godly marriage. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor of a large multi-site church in Georgia, wrote a book published last year called The New Rules of Love, Sex, and Dating. And in it, he was telling about a time, he said, when I was 26, I flew to Washington, D.C. to be a groomsman in a friend's wedding. After the reception, the wedding party of 12 or so headed to an upscale bar in Georgetown. And since I was part of the wedding party, I thought I should join them. The turning point in the conversation came when the girl next to the girl who started all of this said, and I quote, Andy, I heard a preacher say that the man had to be the head of the home because a two-headed home is like a two-headed monster. Is that what you believe, that the man is the head? He said, right away, things get quiet. People are looking at me like, what is he going to say in this world where nobody believes that anymore? So he said, here's the gist of what I said to those ladies that night. Before I answer your question, I want you to imagine you're married to a man who genuinely believes you are the most fantastic person on the planet. He's crazy about you. You have no doubt that your happiness is his top priority. He listens when you talk. He honors you in public. To use an old-fashioned term, he cherishes you. He's not afraid to make a decision. He values your opinions. He leads, but he listens. 
He's responsible. He's not argumentative. You have no doubt that he would give his life for you if the need arose. You never worry about him being unfaithful. In fact, to quote an old flamingo song, he only has eyes for you. As I was saying all of this, he said, the folks on the other end of the table began turning and listening in. And the longer I talked, the more I sensed their resistance ebbing. And when I finished, I paused and I said to these two girls, would either of you have trouble following or submitting to a man like that? The girl to his right said, man, no way. I want to meet that guy. (laughs) Everybody laughed. Without realizing it, he said, she had made my point. It's easy, perhaps natural, to submit to someone who genuinely has your best interest in mind. There's no fear, no reason to resist. And conversely, anyone who has your best interest in mind has an effect submitted already to you. That person has chosen to leverage him or herself for your benefit, basically saying, you first. People, that's a great summary of God's design, isn't it? You first. That's the way Jesus lived. God, you first. Others, you first. Peter said, husbands and wives who have Jesus as their living hope should live their lives and marriage in the same way. Godly, rightly understood, proper submission and right, godly, understood consideration of others. And he said, when you do that, you will have the hope that you're doing your part under God toward a godly marriage. There are no guarantees, but there is hope when you're doing it God's way. And he said, then you can have a living hope in a hopeless world. Father, I want to thank you today for a word that is challenging and reveals again a design that we cannot afford to have lost. A design that needs to be taught and understood and modeled. Lord, I know today in this room and listening online, there are single people, never married, widowed, divorced. And their encouragement through this is that where they are, you have a design and purpose for them. And as they live that out, they will know the blessing of God upon their lives. There are people today in my hearing who are going through a really rocky marriage. They may be estranged or separated or even through the process of a divorce. But if in the midst of all of that, they can hold on to God's design, even in the midst of terrible times, treating each other with respect, then you are free, God, to work through them, to accomplish whatever purpose you are seeking to work out. And there are some who have marriages that are beautiful, working, harmonious, God-honoring, and they're grateful. But they must continue to seek your face, for those things are not guaranteed. So, Lord, thank you for this word. It is so countercultural to the way we live. 
But for Christians, this was the word you gave. And to a group of persecuted believers, it was another chance to show, even in their marriage, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, what it is to have Jesus Christ as your living hope. Lord, I commit this to you, and I ask for your help for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.